0: Let's turn to Isaiah 11. We're actually getting, I've been looking forward to this for a while because um, we're getting to, a, a, we're, we're nearing the second major section of Isaiah. The first section is Isaiah 1 through 12. And you know, Isaiah 6 comes right at the center. So we talked a lot about why that is. And we've seen a bunch of recurring themes in Isaiah 1 through 12. And really, Isaiah 1 through 12 lays out the main themes of the book. But... The next section is very interesting because the next section, as we'll see, not next week, but Lord willing, the week after that, as we'll see, is um, is all the is a series of laments um, or oracles against certain nations. And it's actually a controversial section. There are a lot of questions about why it's set up that way, what it's doing in this book, what the significance of it is. But I I, I think it's really rich in terms of its uh, its meaning and significance for us today but we're not there yet we're still in Isaiah 11 and just to remind you of a couple of points because it's been a few weeks um, since since I was here um, big picture question that Isaiah seems to be answering if you take chapters you know one one and two and compare them to chapter 66 big picture question is how does this city, Of Jerusalem, which is considered in Isaiah's day as being, the the term he uses is a harlot, unfaithful woman, Um, how does that then become a faithful city? How does the faithless city become a faithful city? Um, And because in Isaiah 66, Jerusalem is this faithful city held up uh, as a model, held up as an example of God's um, kindness and, and God's rich blessing and of people who are actually obeying him. So, so the question is, how do we get from point A to point B? And what we see in 1 through 12 is that one of the ways we're going to get from point A to point B is through judgment, God's judgment on his people. We're also going to get there by God's revelation of his Messiah. That's really at the center of it. We've seen that actually even in chapter 11. I think we got a little bit into 11 um, last time, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pick up there again this time. And, and and then there's a, there's a third kind of theme, though, that's running through all this, which is God's going to rescue his people through judgment and the salvation of his Messiah. But even as this is happening, even as the judgment is being poured out, and there isn't messianic blessing yet, what we also see is this remnant. There's always a remnant of God's people, even when there's general unfaithfulness. So we're going to see all of that in 11 and 12 and tw- and this is really going to wrap up the section. So, um the hope if we were to ask the question in chapter 11 in the midst of God's judgment. So look at 10:33 and 34 just to kind of reorient yourself as to where we are. 10:33 Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great and height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So one of our key themes that we've always seen is that God's going to do all these things through judgment. And we see that there. But the, the question is, what's the hope in the midst of judgment? And again, we touched on this two weeks ago. So this is a little bit of review, but that as this tree is chopped down, there's a little shoot that comes up out of it. And that's the image in 11.1, in One, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So after kind of everything's been leveled, everything's been destroyed, after God has judged his people, this little shoot's going to come up, and that shoot is going to end up leading to a branch, if you're kind of following the metaphor through. And the branch is actually the Messiah, because look at what it says, A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. You go down to verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his loins. So the characteristics of the branch contained there in 2 through 4. He's righteous. He's judging the poor. He's he's judging the earth uh, according to verse 4. And he's filled with the spirit of the Lord. So we've got another one of our themes which is the Messiah. And just by way of review, with with this one in particular, we've seen a number of ways in chapters 1 through 12 that this Messiah has been portrayed. Uh, We've been told, we've been taught already that he's going to be born of a virgin. um, In Isaiah 7. We've been told that he's going to be a baby who will also rule. In Isaiah 9. Government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And then here, we're told that he's referred to as this branch. And there are all these characteristics that go along with that. All right. Now, what is this going to lead to? Well, um, the best way to describe verses 6 through 9 is to say this. The reign of this Messiah, the reign of this branch, is going to reverse, in a sense, the effects of the curse and the effects of the fall. It's going to begin to reverse the the effects that were brought in to the world by sin. Look at how it's pictured in 6 through 9, verses 6 through 9 of chapter 11. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." Now. The reason why I say this is a kind of reverse of the effects of the curse is it's definitely a picture of uh, the created order. It's a picture of life in the context of creation, but notice the way the creation's operating. The creation's operating not at war with itself or not at war against humans, but actually at peace. it, it's a picture that we only get a tiny glimpse of at the beginning of the scriptures in Genesis chapter 2. It's not a really, it's not a really lengthy glimpse, but remember in Genesis 2, when um, after Adam is created, and we've already been told in Genesis 1 that the land animals were created as well, and the birds and the fish, but what it says in Genesis 2, um, before the fall, is that one of the first things that happens is, the Lord brings all the animals in front of Adam and, and asks him basically to name them. And it's a way of exercising dominion, which was introduced in chapter 1, verses 26 through 29 uh, of the creation narrative. But it's but Adam and the creation, and we could bring Eve into that, Adam and Eve and the creation and the created order, the, the sort of animal kingdom, we might say, are all... Dwelling in harmony, it's really clear how the order is supposed to be arranged. It, you've got you've got human beings, or I'll just in the generic sense say man, and then and then underneath it is the rest of the created order, including animals, Oops. Um, but everything else too. And that's exactly how it's supposed to be. Actually, why don't we just just in case this is some somewhat unfamiliar ground, put your hand or put a bookmark. In Isaiah 11, let me show you, show you what I'm talking about in Genesis 1. So in Genesis 1, here's what it says. Um, I'll begin in verse 26. I'll read through verse 28. and we, we won't spend tons of time in this, but I just want to refresh your memory. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And we, we could have a whole big discussion about what that means. But at a basic level, here's what it means. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over all the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then he does it in verse 27. And God blessed them, verse 28. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves along the earth. So, In Genesis 1, with respect to creation, with respect to the animals, we might say, Adam and Eve were created in a position of dominion over them. And then, not only were they positionally in dominion, but they were commanded to exercise that. So, you know, here's your job, now do it. That's verse 26 and verse 28. So, they're in this position of dominion, they're commanded to have dominion. In Genesis 2, we see it starting to play out, because in Genesis 2... When, when Adam is first, as it were, introduced to the animals, if you think of it almost like a like a, a, a play or something, Adam's on stage, and then God brings the animals on stage. When they first are on stage together, when they're first in the scene together, Adam does it. He, he, he exercises dominion over them. He, he's supposed to give them names. He gives them names. But then, what happens in Genesis 3? And this is something to pay attention to in Genesis. In Genesis 3... Um, there's a there's a beast of the field. That's what he's called, a beast of the field, a serpent, the beast of the, the most crafty of the beasts of the field, who comes into the garden and begins to tempt um, Adam and Eve, who are together, and and instead of and instead of exercising dominion as man was supposed to do according to Genesis 1.28, and as we saw like just this slight glimpse of in chapter two. In fact, what happens is it goes the other way around. Now, its I know we know later on that the serpent is Satan, and that's true, and the Bible tells us that, But, but it doesn't actually tell us that in Genesis 3. You might guess it in Genesis 3, but in Genesis 3 what it says is the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, and that phrase, beast of the field that the Lord God had made, where do we see that before? Well, we see it when Adam is introduced to these animals and he names them. And perhaps more importantly, we see it in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Those, that's precisely the, the sort of group that, that they were supposed to exercise dominion over. And so what's happening in Genesis 3 in the fall, from a, we might say almost from a literary perspective, or from the perspective of the terms that's used, that are used, is it's tying us back in and saying, see, they didn't they didn't do that. And after that point, uh as you know, from Genesis 3 on, uh, there's there's this, great, there's this great difficulty. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 that the whole creation, and this is really interesting to think about, the whole creation is groaning since the fall, awaiting our redemption, the redemption of our bodies. Why? Because creation is, in a sense, at war with us, in a sense, at war with itself, um, it's it's not the way it's supposed to be according to Genesis two. So we so we got that little glimpse for for two seconds of what it was supposed to look like according to Genesis one. But then almost immediately it's undone in a really profound way by the fall. So, yes, are so you saying that <clears throat> that this beast, the serpent, was one of the ones that came before Adam and he gave it a an name? Well, it was that same type at least. I don't think it, I don't know. You know, Satan takes the form of a serpent. That, that's what we learn later on. But the serpent itself, the the, the I guess you could say like the species or whatever, m- must have been one of those ones that came before in Genesis 2. Because it includes that in the beasts of the field. Uh, now, again, Satan, of course, is taking the form of that serpent. and So there's more going on. I'm not saying Satan appeared before Adam in Genesis 2. But I would say, yeah, that the serpent appeared, A ser- serpents appeared before Adam in Genesis 2. Yeah, that, that seems to be the way the text portrays the naming. Does that make sense? That distinction? Okay. Um, okay. So, all that's context because when we come back now to Isaiah 11, in Isaiah 11, what we have is this really, um, really significant statement that what redemption, the, the redemptive work of this branch, who, and we could include all these things in it as well, the redemptive work of this Messiah is is going to begin and, and lead to, in an ultimate way, this uh, fundamental reversal of all these effects of the curse. Because wolves aren't bad, calves aren't bad, even serpents aren't bad, but there's a, there's a sense in which, from Genesis 3 on, they've been at odds with either with, with each other, or in the case of these adders that are mentioned, cobra that's mentioned in verse 8, um, at, at, at odds with man um, in important respects. So that's all going to get undone, is the point. And, and there's going to be this, this um, piece why because the earth shall be full of the full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And now we we need to start asking ourselves questions that I think Isaiah 12 will answer for us, which is what's being described here from our perspective, from our new Testament vantage point. As we look back at Isaiah 11, it's one thing for Isaiah to say to them, this is what it's going to be like. But then we have an additional question, which is what does that mean for now? Um, does that teach us anything about right now? Is that exclusively about the future? Who's being described as this branch? So, so we're going to have to answer those, and I think there are some clues as to how to answer that when we get to chapter 12. But that's, that's a question that should be in your minds. It's not directly answered right there, because right there we're still standing, you know, we're kind of standing in Isaiah world, looking forward, and and he's just giving us these images. Um, questions about that before we move on to the next sort of piece of Isaiah 11 see what's the imagery that's being put together okay um, now this root of Jesse we've got another we've got another name we, we can add to this list of messianic names in, um, in Isaiah 1 through 12. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples? Of him, all the nations; or of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations. He will assemble the banished of Israel. Gathered the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Uh, Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down over the shoulder of the Philistines in the west. Together they shall plunder the peoples of the east, and they shall put out their hand against Edom, and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead his people across in sandals, and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of the remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up out of the land of Egypt. Now, there's there's so much imagery packed into this that you know we could spend a, a long time cross referencing every every phrase and technical term that Isaiah uses. He uses a lot. He's painting this very vivid picture. And he expects us to understand the allusions. He expects us to understand all the references he's making verbally here. But if I were to ask you, as you read through it or just heard me read through it, what were, was there any event in the history of Israel up to this point, up to Isaiah 12, was there any event that you picked up on that Isaiah was definitely referring to or, or kind of making mention of? In this section. There are a bunch. But one or two that just pop. Or are, are meant to really pop out. He's very explicit about them. Or pretty explicit about them. You get references to the Exodus? Yeah. The long- yeah. That's the biggie. That's the big thing that sort of pops out. And I want to highlight that. Because Isaiah is going to come back to this. A number of other places in his book. He's going to say. Here's the, here's the situation you're in Israel. You're in a situation where. I know you're living in Jerusalem right now. Because remember, Isaiah's preaching to people who lived in Judah and Jerusalem and went up to offer sacrifices in the temple. So from their perspective, you know they had things they were scared about at different periods of time. There were enemies that were coming in on either side and they were worried about that. But the bottom line is, they're there in the land. And Isaiah says, first of all, the Lord's going to judge you. And second of all, What you need at a deep level, at at the most fundamental level, is, is you need another exodus. You need a second exodus. And in fact, he'll use that exact term later on in the book. You need another exodus. You need a greater Moses to lead you back. And it's sort of strange because I can imagine Isaiah's hearers hearing that and saying, why do we need a second exodus? We're here in the land. We're in Jerusalem. That happened to our fathers in the wilderness, but why do we need one now? But he says, what you need is another exodus. And what he also says is, before that exodus happens, I'm going to cast you to all the corners of the earth. So you're not going to stay here. In fact, you're going to be led into exile. And then in the context of exile, you're going to need another exodus. Now, I'm sorry to Kind of referred to so many passages, but that are but they're so central to understanding what Isaiah is saying here. We looked at Genesis one through three, talked about the Exodus. There's another passage that's sort of in here. It's at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. We don't have to turn there, but at the end of Deuteronomy, the Lord says this that or well, the Lord through Moses says this to the people. It's really it's actually really an amazing sermon because. Um, they're right on the edge of the promised land. And so it's sort of the beginning of a new day. They've got a lot ahead of them. It's, it's all really good. But but Moses says, actually, here's how this is going to play out. You're going to go into the land, and if you obey the Lord, it'll be really good. He'll bless you in all kinds of ways. But if you disobey the Lord, he's going to bring on all these curses. And then and you kind of read it and say, all right, well, Let's shoot for blessing then, but but then Moses goes on and says, and actually, um, you're going to do the disobey thing. You're going to all the curses are going to come upon you, and the final curse, the kind of big meta ultimate curse that's going to show them that they disobeyed, is they're going to be exiled from the land. He's going to take people from a language they don't understand, and he's going to. Quote this exact verse in a few chapters. You're going to take people from a language they don't understand, and, and he's going to carry them off into exile. And then Moses says, But when you're there, um, he doesn't use the term you'll you'll have a second Exodus. But what he says is when you're there, if you cry out to the Lord and you turn to him in repentance, he'll circumcise your hearts. You know, they had physical circumcision, but physical circumcision always pointed to spiritual circumcision. He'll circumcise your hearts, and he'll bring you back. Now, Isaiah doesn't use the circumcision of the heart thing yet, but he, he looks at this as a kind of second exodus. So you're going to be scattered, and you're going to be brought in. Now again, question you should be asking, I hope you're asking, and I, and I hope we can start to answer today, is um, that's, that's, I see it from Isaiah's standpoint, but what about from our standpoint? What's being described here? In terms of the work of the messiah we know that the messiah is going to be at the center of the second exodus um, but but what's that going to look like and we, we know it's going to reverse or start to undo the curse but but how else is it going to play out all right um and you see the you see verse 16 um it's I, I i've talked to you before about how israel is and i've drawn bad maps about this but you know that Israel's sort of caught in between people. Uh, there's a there's a region around the Tigris and Euphrates River that is populated by, you know, the Babylonian Empire and the Assyrian Empire, and then the Babylonian Empire again, you know, there's just a, a series of empires there, and then there's Egypt. And actually, the way the trade routes worked, Israel's kind of right in the middle. And and do you see how this Exodus is gonna? kind of clear out all the space for them there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of of uh, his people as there was for Israel when they came up out of the land of Egypt so it's going to be a second exodus but now it's going to be from exile over here it's going to clear out the whole path for you to get back all right let me pause there for a second before diving into the next sort of difficulty um Questions or comments or thoughts or pushback or you know shaking your fist against me? Any anything like that? Okay. If I may ask, please. He's talking about he's gathering his people in the remnant. um, It might be a simple question, but is it? Is he referring basically to the Jews or all of his people? Yeah. Great question. This is another one where we have to answer it both. Are you guys leaving already? For
1: children, children. Oh, okay. <laughs> For
0: the sake. He's getting backed up. <laughs> um. So, um. Yeah, this is a question that we have to answer almost in two ways. The first is what would Isaiah, what would the people in Isaiah's day have known? What would they have thought of? And and he seems to be talking about a remnant from within. I mean, they would have thought the pe- Jewish people, right? I and mean, that's, that's how we, they would have thought of it. Um, this then gets us into a New Testament question, because what we have to ask ourselves is, how does the Apostle Paul, uh, these very important passages in Romans 9 through 11, how does the Apostle Paul understand the remnant of Israel? How does he even understand the title Israel? And then I think he expands this. And so, and so he says, there's all, not all Israel is true Israel. It's always about the believing remnant, and 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 who's in the believing remnant? Um, or even you could ask this of the Gospels: Who does Jesus say is part of the um, this believing remnant? And I think they they expand it beyond ethnic categories. Um, so again, that's why I say we almost have to answer it in two ways. I don't know what Isaiah would have been aware of, or what the people would have heard. What they would have heard is: There's always going to be believers, and. And it really offers them such hope because even if you're taken into exile, even if everything falls apart, you still have a calling, and it's to be the remnant that God brings back. Um, and I, but to answer your question, I think I think Jesus expands that, talks about it, focusing on Himself and those who are united to Him um, as the the real uh, the real rescuer, the one who fulfills all of these things. Because remember. It, even in Isaiah, although he doesn't talk really much about ethnicity, but it would have sort of been assumed, what he definitely makes clear is the remnant and the people who are rescued are people who are bound up in this Messiah, right? Who are united to this Messiah. And I think Jesus and Paul just expand on and say that's exactly right. You, 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 you receive this through your union with the Messiah, through your union with Christ. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question a little bit? Okay. That's a great question. Um okay. Now, um I want to answer uh two questions, uh, well three questions in Isaiah 12. And I think we have time to do this. Um because Isaiah 12 is um it it's perfect if you if for as we've been studying songs in the last uh, semester, um in the fall, we were studying the songs of the Bible. And one of the things I said about the songs of the Bible is there are like mini commentaries. They, they give you the theological reflection on whatever you've just read and then prepare you for what you're about to read. And this is, this is Isaiah 12. Isaiah 12 wraps up everything we've just read and gives us a kind of commentary on it. When all these things take place, when God rescues his people through his Messiah and those who are united to him through faith, which Isaiah is referring to now as the remnant, brings them back in a second exodus, begins to undo the effects of the curse, all this great stuff. When this happens, how should we look at it? Well, um, this is the first question I want to ask from Isaiah 12, 1 through 3. I, I'm going to read the whole chapter because it's really short. It's just six verses and then ask three questions. You will say in that day, so this is what they're going to say. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. All right. So first question, and it's a really basic one. It's kind of, you know, almost the assumption of, the, of every verse, which is when these remnant people united to the Messiah through faith, um, who are being rescued, when they're rescued, when they're saved, who, who is it that is kind of at the at the core of all that like who's done it who 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 will they have to sing praise to who who do they have to give all the credit for 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 this great salvation that they receive this is not a trick question this is just a kind of obvious question the lord yeah exactly they have they 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 have to praise the lord for this so um so for putting through to the, connecting the dots of Isaiah 12 and trying to see how it's a commentary on these first 11 chapters, first thing we would say is, salvation is of the Lord. And you know, it's kind of interesting because um, we've actually seen this with respect to some of these messianic promises, not all of them, but some of them. I'm thinking, for instance, the one in Isaiah 9 and to some extent the one here in Isaiah 11. But this happens throughout Isaiah. The Messiah and, and Yahweh himself, those terms are used interchangeably. So when we come to the New Testament and we see that Jesus presents himself as the Christ, as the Messiah, but he's also the Son of God. He also receives worship and he doesn't... Tell people don't worship me. You know that's that's a mistake. You know, he receives it, and he forgives sin. And they and they they say, who can forgive sin? But God alone. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right. Um, and so he he receives worship. He forgives sin. He calls himself uh, the Lord. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And they pick up stones to stone him for that. In, in John eight, um, but it is interesting how intertwined. The work of the Messiah and the work of Yahweh are... It's it's like they're they're talking about the same person. It's like Yahweh himself is the Messiah. Um, But... So the Lord receives the glory for all of this. The Lord receives the praise. Salvation is of the Lord. You know, this is such an important theological principle. When we talk about our doctrine of salvation and one of the key cornerstones of our doctrine of salvation that we would declare week by week, and it's in our confessional documents... Just so clear is that the Lord's the one who's done all of it. He chooses, he draws, he transforms, he justifies, he sanctifies, he glorifies. He does it. He does all of it. Which is why in Revelation, when 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 the saints receive crowns, they just throw them back because they didn't do it. He did it. So, salvation is of the Lord. What an important principle for us to always keep in mind. Which means no room for pride, no room for boasting, no room for <coughs> keeping anything to ourselves that this area is off limits in my life. And, you know, Lord, I'll kind of give you some, some other leftover stuff. You can't do that because it's all of the Lord. That's one thing. Second thing, second question that I want us to um, try to answer is um, what who to whom does this message go and this sort of addresses the Israel question a little bit but to whom does this message of salvation extend and uh to whom to whom is it is it given who who's supposed to hear about it who's supposed to know about it who's supposed to benefit from it who's supposed to who is a yeah, yeah. All those questions. Who's supposed to hear about it? Who's supposed to know about it? Who's supposed to benefit from it? What does it say, particularly in the second half? Verses. I mean, it's, it could be any verse, but particularly verses four through six. Who hears about this? From Jerusalem to Judea to the end. <coughs> yeah, I like that. That's a great way to describe it. That's. It's exactly like Acts one, isn't it? It's. It's everyone. It's. Um, Make known his deeds among the peoples. That's indiscriminate. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Let this be made known in all the earth. Um, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And in Acts 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The, what do we see there? The, the the transformed remnant of God who've been rescued and who've received his salvation in Jerusalem, now go and take it everywhere. That's exactly what you see in Acts 1. In fact, it's it's not just in a kind of metaphorical way what you see. It's exactly what you see. They're in Jerusalem, they're in the same city, walking the same steps in the same cobblestone that Isaiah was walking. They're there. They've been saved by the Lord. They recognize that he's the Messiah. They're united to the branch through faith, and they go to the ends of the earth. That's what they're called to do. That's what we're called to do. So you see that in Isaiah 12. It's a universal message. It's for everyone. Paul stands in Greece, in Athens, on the, on, right near the Acropolis, and he says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. And so I don't have any problem standing here in front of all of you who are Gentiles, who are, who are philosophically oriented, who've grown up in paganism, and your parents have done that for hundreds of years, and say, Jesus Christ is the one appointed as the judge of the living and the dead. To him all must give an account. and that You've got to repent and turn to him. That's the only hope of salvation. And that's, what, that's what's described here. So it's God receives the glory... And I'll say all nations. But here's the interesting one. Um, And There's a third passage I want us to look at. And it's it's in John. It's in the Gospel of John. There's this little verse in the middle here. Maybe it sort of rang a bell, but you weren't sure why. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. What, a stri- what an interesting image. I mean, so one, it's a beautiful image. Think about going to the well, and it's hot, and you, you're just drawing water, and that's what, that's what salvation is like. But the thing I want to point out about that is that Jesus himself, on two different occasions in, in John's Gospel, describes that when he describes himself. And exactly what you get when you come to him. So remember I said one of the questions I want to start to answer, maybe not get everywhere uh, to answering it, but, um, but is when does this take place? How, what's being described here uh, in chapter 11 in particular? And I want to just point out to you that in two different places in John's gospel, first in John chapter 4, and then in John chapter 7 maybe even more clearly. Uh, But in both places, Jesus directly connects Isaiah 12 to himself. Look at what he says in John 4. This is probably the more familiar of the two. In John 4, Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And she's drawing water, and and, and Jesus kind of uses that as a jumping off point. And um, he says to her, Verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. It's great that you have this physical water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And she says, give me this water. And and Jesus basically says, as he, as he goes on, that I... Verse twenty six: I, I who speak to you am He. And then look at John seven. This is a wonderful. Um, this is really unpacked very clearly when you see the geography of this, because Jesus is is at this point um, next to a a pool, and a, and as part of the ritual that would take place on this day, they would they would go to the pool and pour out water, and it was just part of the. Part of the ritual, but here's what Jesus says on the last day of the feast. This is John seven thirty seven, the great day. It's and it's hard to imagine, but Jerusalem was full, and they were acting out all of these important rituals from Israel's history. And he says, "If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow waters of." Uh, rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, for Jesus was not yet glorified. Now we don't have time to trace the water imagery through the prophets. What a great Sunday school that would be. We should do that sometime. Um, But it's there. And and the seed of it is in Isaiah 11, or Isaiah 12. Um, And Jesus basically pulls it all together. He says, that's what happens when you come to me. You come to me, you're united to me as the Messiah, and, and living water springs up through you. You have new life, spiritually. And it's referring to the Spirit, because Ezekiel does that. Ezekiel says, the water is, is the Spirit. This is what God's doing when he talks about water. And Jesus knows all of, of course, he knows Ezekiel, backwards and forwards. And and uh, so, so this is what's being described here. So when we get to the question of, You know, when does this all take place? Well, the answer, I think, is that the beginnings of it, the kind of first fruits, to use 1 Corinthians 15 language, the first fruits of all of this begin as people are united to Christ from all corners of the earth and and given His Spirit and refreshed by His Spirit and cleansed by His Spirit and empowered by His Spirit to, to go forth and continue to proclaim the praises of the one who saved them. And, and, and then, then we look forward to, to a time when God, not only in, in a partial way, as he, as he causes us to be more like him now by the Spirit who's inside of us, um, making us more like Christ, making us more, we might even say more human, because more like what we're created to be. Um, but, but then there's a time one day where the Spirit, who's the first fruits has been given to us now, will be given in his fullness, and the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to our mortal bodies, and death will be swallowed up in victory. So there is a, a sort of now and a future aspect to this, of course, and and, and and Isaiah, because he's a prophet, is seeing them like a mountain. You know, we, I think I've talked about this image where, where you know you, you see you see these mountains in the distance and they look like they're right next to each other, but you get close and you realize, oh, actually, they're kind of far apart. Isaiah has that perspective. He doesn't always, he's not always clear about first advent, second advent. Peter says he tried, he made careful searches and inquiries about that. But but it's like that with the salvation, too. It's like there's this collapsing of what's going to happen in the future when it's fully undone, the curse is fully undone, but also what's happening now as in the first fruits we receive this resurrection power. And so Paul can say, I count everything as lost. For the sake of knowing him, being found in him with a righteousness that's not my own. If I might, you know, also attain to the resurrection of the dead. And I have this resurrection power working in me, he says. So, so that's, that's the beginning of the second exodus. we um, were seeing Jesus lay claim to it and offer it to people. To Samaritans. And to Jews. And to everybody. And... Um, this, this wonderful fulfillment of verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation and it's all due to the glory of God. Well, okay, I'm well past our time. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for the day that you've given to us and for the riches of your word. We, we just, just barely scratched the surface of them in the time that you've given to us, but we still pray that you would take this small uh, time and, and the small degree of effort on our part, and use it to your glory, uh, cause us by your Spirit to, to reflect on the things of your word, to rejoice in the things of your word, and to be transformed by them. May it affect the way we look at ourselves, the way we praise you, the way we look at our job on the earth, and, and what you're going to do in the future. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.